Welcome to Next Gen Now with Rudina Cesare, your inside track to technology, innovation, and the startup world. Rudina bridges listeners with the brain trust of the business world, speaking with early adopters and industry leading innovators. Each week, she gives you a backstage pass to the people designing, building, and marketing the companies, products, and services of the future. Now, WebmasterRadio.fm presents Next Gen Now with your host, Rudina Ciceri. Thanks for joining us. I am Rudina Ciceri, partner at Fairhaven Capital, and I invest in early stage technology companies. You can follow me on Twitter at Rudina11. And for those of you who don't know, that is R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers one and one. I welcome you, our listeners, to this edition of Next Gen Now. Today on the program, we will talk about the role technology has played in transforming publishers and content platforms. My special guest for this show is Galen Moore, Editor-in-Chief at Streetwise Media. First, though, let me share a few informal thoughts on the topic of sharing economy. At its core, the sharing economy is defined as leveraging technology to create marketplaces where individuals and enterprises may share, use, and distribute goods and services in a more effective manner. Put in different terms, it is about creating efficient marketplaces where demand and supply meet. But let me reframe the definition. What are companies like Uber and Lyft in the transportation market, Airbnb in hotel accommodations, Drizzly in liquor distribution, and Instacart in grocery delivery really all about? I venture to state that these companies are about creating a new interface layer between providers of services and goods and consumers. Their power and scale stems from controlling the relationship with consumers by offering better quality, lower cost, higher convenience, and more reliability. The most remarkable achievement is that through the use of technology, particularly the consumer interface and experience on their platforms, these once startup players have been able to disrupt the existing relationship between consumers and the traditional suppliers of goods and services. It is the sharing economy companies that now control that relationship and have the consumer trust. The supermarket and liquor stores, hotels and homeowners with excess space have merely become back-end suppliers. And now it's time for us to take a short break. But when we come back, I will be joined by our guest, Galen Moore. Stay with us. Next Gen Now will return, staying ahead of the technology curve, after a word from our sponsors. Creating a website is not an easy task, and there are so many companies to choose from. How do I know which one is best? It's a big jump making your site mobile-friendly, generating sales, and answering questions with no struggles. If you want to come out on top, you need Frog on Top. At Frog on Top, we take the time to make your site generate money, not just look good. Our team of experts are WordPress savvy, and our customer service is leaps ahead. See why we say our websites are designed better by leaps and bounds by going to frogontop.com. Frog on Top, your one-stop solution for the web. Frogontop.com. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat 
by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics. So you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PVC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome Galen Moore as my guest on the show. In his role as editor-in-chief of Streetwise Media, Galen oversees coverage of the innovation economy in three cities via Bostino, Chicago Inno, and DC Inno. Through a 15-year journalism career, he has covered business, technology, politics, and lifestyle news in Boston and nationally. He serves on the board of Eggleston Square Main Street and with the all-volunteer MIT College radio station WMBR. Galen, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rudina. So, over the last two decades, we have seen major disruption in the physical, from the physical newspaper to the digital content generation to mobile access for such digital content and distribution through social channels. I'd love to talk to you about the disruption that has occurred in the news and news reporting and more broadly publishing industry. It's perhaps one of the most disrupted market segments from a tech immersion point of view. Streetwise Media in many ways is a poster child for such change. So let's start by the, through the basics. What is Streetwise Media and what is your role truly in it every day? Sure. So I think our focus is probably uh, more narrow than um, many uh, publications that have done a lot of the disrupting that has come through. We'd like to think of ourselves as disruptive, at least in a, uh, a small and focused kind of a way. Uh, as our name suggests, in each city we're in, we cover the innovation economy on a local level uh, and focused on markets outside of Silicon Valley. If you look at Boston, for example, and what's happened here in the past five years, Boston has a long history of technological innovation. And for some people, thinking of Boston as part of a, a sort of a, an up-and-coming city in technology is a difficult uh, hurdle to leap over mentally. Uh, but the fact is it's true. Boston has uh, come a long way and has a long way to go in terms of building its own economy of technology companies uh, and innovative industries here. Uh, and we feel like that's a very exciting place to be, mostly for us because we are able to be embedded in that community and cover it as an insider, something that you saw some of the innovators in tech media do in Silicon Valley starting about 10 years ago, companies like TechCrunch, reporting on what was happening in Silicon Valley at that time from an insider's perspective. That's not something that the uh, traditional media has tooled themselves up very well to do. It's something we aim to do in Boston and Chicago and D.C. and in several more cities to come. 
So, Galen, in many ways, you are making a bet on where, if you will, the next um, flow of tech startups will be, and tech startups that ultimately will be successful, such that they create big markets where there is stories worth covering, correct? That's absolutely right, although, frankly, it's, it's not a very risky bet. <laughs> uh, when you when you look at uh, I'll, gi- I'll give you an example that, that's highly anecdotal. Portland, Oregon experienced a, a boom of uh, an influx of outsiders in the early '80s, and a lot of those people were refugees from Hollywood. So you had people doing work like set design, costume design. The advent of technology enabled them to do that work from anywhere but Los Angeles, which, as many of you know. It's a terrible place to live. I say that as a northern Northern California by birth. Please take it with a grain of salt. We hate Southern California. <laughs> anyway, people people moved from LA to Portland because they could be up there and do their jobs. And as a result, a sort of a creative cluster developed there. This was again more than three decades ago that this began to happen. In Portland today, you see the same thing happening with tech companies. People are fleeing the same kinds of conditions: traffic, rat race, high real estate prices fleeing the same kind of conditions, moving to Portland and working, either working remotely as technology employees or starting their own companies up there. Nashville, you see the same thing happening in Nashville, Tennessee. People are fleeing New York because they don't want to pay the rent. They don't want to deal with the traffic and they want to breathe cleaner air uh, for any number of reasons. Uh, They're moving to Nashville, Tennessee. They're starting companies there. They are working remotely from there. So you see these kinds of clusters of innovation developing as a result of the ability to really work from wherever you want and also the high demand for tech talent that exists today. If uh, the ability to work remotely is the amenity you're looking for, uh, in many ways, if you have the skills companies are looking for, you can write your own ticket in that regard. And I tend to agree with that. The other piece I would add, um, Galen, is this whole notion of there is the depth of talent in all three markets that you are in. For Boston, it's the number of universities we have and already a deep culture that is tech-driven. But continuing with the, um, with the streetwise media platform, what about from the decisions you're making on the type of content and how you are delivering that content? What is the role of technology there? We recognize that a large portion of our readers come to us via social. They come to us via uh, mobile devices as well. Uh, we have somewhere in the realm of about 40% traffic coming from mobile and uh, somewhere about a third of our traffic comes from social media. Organizing those facts, one of the things we look for is to deliver uh, news and information in a more concise way. So that's not particularly revolutionary. Uh, some of the ways that we apply it, I think, can get pretty interesting. I'll give you one example. Please. Uh, a, tradition, a traditional business publication profile, it runs about 800 to 1,200 words and reads a little bit like a resume of a person's life. Uh, depending on the skill of the writer, it can be a very interesting resume to read or a somewhat dry and boring one. Um, but in any case, writers tend to start from the beginning and move up to the date. What we try to do is take more of a snapshot. We'll take a, a person who's interesting in a business community, whether that's Boston, Chicago, D.C., or some other city, to find what's interesting about them, something we can deliver in, say, 400 words. Mm-hmm. A story that can be told quickly, that gives you some insight into what that person is like, uh, that grabs your attention and, and makes you want to read a little more, know a little more about that person. That, for us, is the kind of content that's compelling for our readers who, again, are coming to us via social media and mobile, you know, is a much, really, I think, a much more interesting way to tell a story about a person 
the kind of way you'd tell it, say, in a bar or over dinner, rather than sort of starting at the beginning in a in a long tale. But is it about the uh, informal nature of how the content is created, or is it because your audience is younger and they want to hear the type of stories that are told in a bar? Yeah, I think it is, you know, social media tends toward informality. Uh, so you see that in headlines, for example, the, um, you know, the clipped style of a, of a traditional news headline, that's largely gone by the wayside. Uh, and now you see more and more news headlines that are written in the way that you would deliver that headline in speech if you were talking to somebody and imparting the news to them in a sentence. So that makes me think, though, Galen, I mean, there's almost this notion of long-form, in-depth stories becoming an obsolete form of writing or, or an artifact. And I, I'll tell you, I love technology. I love acquiring information through social channels. It's very easy to scan the Twitter feed and just get the 140-character soundbite. But are we leaving something behind? Is What is the cost of becoming so informal where a story is broken in a, I'll just stick with your example, in a bar-style form of reporting? What are we leaving on the table? Or am I looking at this from a wrong perspective? No, I don't think that's a wrong perspective at all. But on the other hand, I, I, would, um, I would disagree with anyone who thinks that the long form, when USA Today... Gosh, I don't know when that was, but I, I remember that, that people used to complain about how USA Today had McNuggetized news. USA Today, unlike other print publications, never went to a jump. They never started an article on the front page and then continued reading inside. They might have one story in the day's paper that had that length in order to go from the front to the inside. So the result was stories that ran to 300, 400 words. And people howled about that. That was some decades ago. And I don't think that it has destroyed people's appetite for longer reading. Uh, you look at the, the New Yorker profile, you know, the average length running to thousands or tens of thousands of words. That magazine is, is more successful than almost any other in print right now. At the same time, you have The Economist, where writing tends to run quite a bit shorter. One or two page summaries of, of issues that give you everything you need to know about that issue with a little bit of an editorial slant. There's no question. I think what we're strong and what we're good at is that sort of short conversational style. Does it mean we can't do a longer story once in a while? Absolutely not. And we do. When I look at what really sets us apart from other organizations and how we play our game strongest in the markets that we're in, it really tends to be in some of those shorter, more conversational articles. And so that's very interesting because the reason um, I'm not fully convinced that long form dead may be an exaggeration, but that long form reading will remain a prevail, prevailing mechanism, at least of consuming content, at least for the younger millennials, in part because these digital natives are used to 140 characters of Twitter. They are used to rich media content, and we'll talk a little bit more about the video consumption that occurs. And there is so much more sheer content that comes at them. So if you have more volume, more forms of content, and you are being trained to consume short pieces of information, I'm not sure where the desire to, to read much longer and in-depth pieces on a regular basis is stemming from. You know, I, I'm not sure I agree with you there either. I, okay. I mean, I look at, 
uh, you know, granted, I live in a, in a bubble. I mean, I, I, you know, a technology bubble, a young professional bubble, an urban bubble, a coastal bubble. So, so my experience of what the world is like is, uh, is certainly very different from what it's really like. Uh, I would say that everywhere I go, people are talking about what book they've read recently. And that extends from novels to biographies to histories and to the sort of, you know, uh, nonfiction like uh, Clay Christensen or, um, you know, that kind of business-oriented or technology-oriented writing. That stuff is always the topic of conversation. And to be current, you absolutely have to have read. You have to be reading books, which is the longest form there is. I, I, don't, I don't see any um, denigration of, of, the, of not only that sort of appetite for it, but the need for it, at least not in the, the circles that we move in, and, uh, you know, the readers that we reach. Why don't we leave Galen for a moment in a bubble as we will go to a break. But when we come back, we will push him out of bubble and we will talk about, in fact, the role of video and rich media as well as what is happening with, from a disruption point of view with startups that have grown like Streetwise Media, but most recently as well, Recode and its acquisition. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Next Gen Now will return, staying ahead of the technology curve, after a word from our sponsors. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I'm joined by Galen Moore. And we have been talking about the role technology has played in transforming the content publishing industry. So, Galen, we talked about form, short form, long form um, materials and content, particularly on the news side. And a little bit about, we started sort of getting into the different forms of content. What's the role of video content? It seems to be pervasive. And how have technological tools affected it? 
You know, I think video is very attractive to the publisher because it is where almost anything you can do, when I say co-opted, I mean sort of borrowed by another publication, not in a sense of plagiarism, but in a sense of, you know, linking to and stealing some of your thunder on a story that you might have. Um, if you get it on video, it's yours. It really belongs to you. Nobody can take it. And if, if somebody's sharing that video, chances are that traffic, those eyeballs, they're coming to you, they're aware of you more than they're aware of that publication that's sharing it. I think when it comes to the sort of viral potential of Facebook and YouTube, you know, that having grown over the years, I would say it's less a technology issue than it is simply a sense of where the audience is and how to reach them with content that can really be stamped with your own mark of originality. Uh, you know, that said, the ability to, the near ubiquitous ability to watch a video uh, in an instant on your phone, uh, on a mobile device, uh, is a huge contributor to that kind of activity. So, you know, downtime on the train on the way home can be filled by watching either a video that's either useful in some way or entertaining in some way. Sure, have have gotten wise to that and are maximizing that opportunity, which is why you see so much activity in that area. And as the ultimate decision maker on what can no content go uh, gets published, how do you decide about the proportion of content that needs to be in any given form? So what percent is video, what percent is text, what percent is images, or do you not even think about it in those terms? Well, I mean, I guess to some extent we do. For example, we don't publish any story without an image. And I, I also sometimes, I mean, I'm often asking writers to contribute two or three images for a story. If we quote somebody in a story, I'd like a writer to provide an image of that person, even if it's just a headshot, so we can see what that person looks like who's talking in the story. To that, I'd like an image that's a little more engaging as well. I'm fond of telling people that, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words and the story's only going to be 500. So <laughs> if that's a ratio, then I guess that's the one I apply. Um, when it comes to video, I think I, I'll admit our efforts are, are very young there. Um, we have a long way to go. In each market we're in, look to contribute at least one video story a week, and, and that means original video content. And whether that's simply an interview with somebody who's interesting or something that's more visually appealing, telling stories in that way is a really important part of what we do. Lovely. And so you create the content, be, be the once a week video or, um, or the text based with an image content. And then, of course, you have to look at the other side, if you will, of what a publication needs to have. And that's eyeballs and an audience. Again, thinking about the role technology plays and how you generate virality, how exactly do you build your audience? You've already talked about oh, social media being a good, what I will call a good channel for acquiring um, an audience, but can you elaborate on that? There are a lot of things you can do uh, to bring in readers. And I think a publisher always has to keep in mind what is the total number of readers that this story is going to attract and then within that, kind of what percentage are really my readers? What percentage are people who potentially will or understand what we're doing and want more of it? Especially within a sort of a niche publishing uh, world like the one I work in, there's a tendency to say, well, you know, we got a lot of tra traffic on that story, but it was just search traffic coming through, people just searching it, and they probably will probably never see them again. But what, what I think people sometimes fail to recognize is that even if it's a fairly small percentage of, those, of that traffic being sort of your readers, that's a small percentage of a very large number. Correct. So if you attract 
500,000 readers to a story and only 5% of them are, are sort of your readers and likely to come back, that's still a pretty good number. Well, and in fact, I'll tell you, especially you reference search and search is different metrics, but especially if you think about social channels, if one is getting a 5% conversion on social channels, uh, you'd be one of a kind and you'd be chased by even more dollars than you are today. So I, I can appreciate that. Galen, um, in this whole new media world, um, including including your publications, you're in fact venture-backed. What do you think about the role of entrepreneurship in your own business, not just what you're covering, which is innovation and technology in these emerging hubs, but also in your own business? I mean, most recently, we heard of Ricoh's acquisition by Vox Media. What, what are your thoughts around that and the role of entrepreneurship and venture capital? I have to ask about what's close and dear to my heart in your business going forward. It's a good question. I, I think uh, we're sort of entering or have entered a new phase of, uh, of innovation in news media. You have venture capital dollars pouring into new ventures like Vox Media, uh, Nate Silver's venture, uh, Recode, which, as you mentioned, has just been acquired by Vox. And at the same time, you have new owners coming in to buy legacy media properties. That's Jeff Bezos buying Washington Post, uh, John Henry buying the Boston Globe, and then in many cases, injecting new capital, and not only new capital, but new energy and new ideas. Uh, that it's, I think it's great. I think it's great that people want to invest in news media. I think a lot of those investors are going to be disappointed when they find out how low the barriers to entry are in this industry. There is no innovation that you can come up with in this industry that cannot be instantly copied by your competitors. Everything you do is on public display. There are a lot of smart people out there. They are going to find you they're going to copy you, and they're going to eat your lunch. There's only one thing that can't be copied, and that's your relationship with your readers. If you attract new readers and retain them and build that relationship, whether it's based on trust, uh, sort of a shared sense of love of exciting things on the Internet, whatever that relationship is based on, if you stick to that tenet and grow your audience within that, uh, within that sort of belief and mutual appreciation for who each other are, then I think that's the one thing that is ultimately defensible and that no competitor can take away from you. But that's no different than building any other brand. And, and in many ways, have, capturing your audience or your reader and uh, turning them into a captive reader in the best of senses um, it's the ultimate result, not an input. I would tend to think that adopting technologies and higher quality content or different type of co type of content are the inputs that ultimately lead to that result, which is really attention and scale, which become a differentiation. Don't you agree? I do, although uh, I think, again, with the technology, it's, um, it's very easy for your competitors to adopt similar technology. Uh, for example, uh, a company that you're very familiar with, Regina Social Flow, is right. used by uh, many of the largest news publishers. You know, I, I know BuzzFeed likes to describe itself as a sort of a full-stack company, uh, which, is, which makes for you know, a very good soundbite, but I would question how much of what they're doing is really innovative in a disruptive sense in the technology world. I think they do technology, the technology of media very well. Really that's a barrier that, that anybody with capital can, uh, can overcome. Really, it's a, the, it is a, there is very little scalability in the media business. The costs are ultimately totally variable. It depends on relationships between individual writers and editors and their readers. And that is not the kind of thing that you can, um, 
you know, sink a bunch of money into and then watch it scale infinitely. It requires a, a very much a, a sort of a day-to-day application of the same principles and, and a, a growth in your staff that I think many venture capital investors will find that they don't have appetite for. Uh, we don't want to be in services-oriented business, so I can appreciate exactly. that Exactly. It's a, it's a service business. Gillen, if you had to make three predictions, pull out your crystal ball, where are we going to be with news reporting in the next five years? Will it be a world where breaking the news first with or without verifying the sources of the news you're breaking is going to be the most important factor, sort of like I got here first? Or where is news heading? Give me three predictions by Galen. <laughs> One thing I think is going to be a lot more important. People, well, that more and more people are going to recognize the importance of the importance of that relationship, that trust. There's a lot of focus right now on customer acquisition, and there's a, a, a paucity of attention when it comes to customer retention. So knowing who your audience is, engaging with them deeply, and forging those bonds, that kind of uh, growth is going to be more valued, and there are going to be better and better ways to measure it. That's one. I think increasingly... Ad technology and programmatic ad buying are going to root out a lot of the niches of publishing that have been sheltered from the disruption that has occurred and may even disrupt some of the new areas in news media that have grown as well. When you can target a customer, potential customer, in so many ways using a machine, that obviously disrupts the ad industry, but it disrupts the media industry as well. And if your game is selling people eyeballs, and if they're highly qualified eyeballs, that kind of technology as ad buyers become more and more familiar with it, and as the technology itself improves by leaps and bounds, is going to eat your lunch. Prediction number three, we are going to stop wringing our hands and fretting over how media is changing, and we're going to figure out ways to keep making it better. You've seen some publications already doing that, not looking back to the past and looking ahead to the future, and not only you know new publications, but legacy publications as well. We're going to stop wringing our hands about it, and we're going to start rolling up our sleeves and figuring out how we can continue to deliver a good product. Ford, GM might be in trouble in any given uh, decade. That doesn't mean that transportation is going to go away. People are going to still be driving cars. It's the same thing with news media. The landscape is going to change. The New York Times may be in trouble. The Wall Street Journal may be in trouble. But we're going to continue delivering news to people, and we're going to keep finding better ways to do it. Great. So disruption is good, and new entrants make for better products. Galen, we are almost out of time, but before we go, can you tell us and our listeners how can they reach you, a final thought on Streetwise Media, and any particular events you'd like to highlight? We've got a big event coming up just the middle of this month, June 16, called State of Innovation. That's here in Boston. We'll be looking at what is the state of innovation in Boston? Where are we? What do we need to do to do better? Uh, that's going to be a great one. It's our biggest event of the year, and we are doing it in all three markets. Boston's is coming up June 16. Uh, of course, you can reach us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, our primary venues, uh, and our website, bostono.streetwise.co. I'm on Twitter at Galen Moore. It's G-A-L-E-N-M-O-O-R-E. And uh, we're on Twitter at B-O-S-T-I-N-N-O. 
Thank you, Caitlin. I'd like to thank you for participating in today's show. And I'd like to thank my producer, Brasco, for producing it. And of course, I thank you, our listeners, for partaking in this edition of NextGen Now. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we are scheduled to be joined by Steve Chambers, CEO of Jibo, the first family robot. New episodes of NextGen Now air every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. If there is a topic you'd like for me to cover, please tweet me at Rudina11. That's R-U-D-I-N-A number one and one. I am Rudina Ceseri, and I look forward to speaking with you next time right here on NextGen Now. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.